This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Professor Bristow and uh, Executive Vice Chancellor War, thank you very much for the kind introduction. I'd like to thank the uh, faculty committee for giving me the honor and privilege of presenting this lecture. Um, Family, friends, colleagues, students, and those who are interested in matters of breathing, uh, I welcome you. I'm going to talk to you today uh, about breathing matters, and just give you an outline of what I'm going to say. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, so you understand why a scholar would be interested in in understanding the basic mechanisms by which the brain controls breathing. I'll tell you a little bit about breathing in general, just so you understand what the brain has to work with in order for us to be able to ventilate properly. I'll talk about our discovery of the principal engine for breathing that drives the rhythm that we're all experiencing right now. I'll then talk about some of the mechanisms that may underlie the rhythm of generation. Then I'll talk a little bit about a discovery of a second engine that was totally unexpected. And then I'll talk about some recent work we've done about things that are not normally considered part of uh, the general aspect of breathing. One is sighing, which I think is a rather interesting story, and the other is about breathing and emotion. Now, a little bit about my background. There we go. I... When I went to graduate school, I was very interested in uh, studying the physics of space and time, and that was going to be my thing. I went to a university that had a great cosmologist, and I was all set to work on this. But it was a time in uh, uh, universities throughout America that uh, students were very interested in perception, and I read a lot about perception, and I realized that the perception of space and time was a really interesting problem. And I got read, and I read it about it, and I went to my physics department professor, and I said, look, here's the problem I want to work on. You have an image, uh, it goes to your retina, it goes through this complex process, and then up in your head pops grandma. Now, how does this happen? Well, when I told that to my advisor, he about had a stroke, because he said, this is an impossible problem. I can't let you work on an impossible problem. The only way I'm going to permit you to work on a problem is you find something that's solvable. So I went back, and I spoke to a lot of people, read quite a bit, and they said, look, the simplest problem is if we have a tonic input, and it goes into a relatively simple circuit, and out comes a rhythm. And as a physicist, rhythms were right in uh, my sweet spot. And what is the behavior that, uh, that this fits into this category? It's breathing, because we can say we have tonic inputs related to oxygen and carbon dioxide, and ultimately we produce a rhythm for breathing. I thought this would be a rather simple problem. I'd solve for my PhD thesis and then move on to other things. Well, I'm still doing it, because it turns out it's not as simple as we thought. Now, breathing to me, is a critical thing that the brain does. And my colleagues in Europe, writing in a manifesto about why brain research is important, uh, wrote in the second sentence of their preface, 
It is more than clear to us that our brain is extremely important to us. It allows us to breathe. So the first thing they talk about the brain doing is breathing. So breathing is fundamentally important, and it's a fundamental thing that the brain does. And, of course, breathing we see throughout all of culture. Uh, We use metaphors uh, with respect to breathing. And uh, I'm going to give you a clip from popular culture. He's right. We're all on the same side. How can we be? We're all breathing. So we're all breathing. And in a way, this is an unusual lecture because I'm going to be lecturing you about something you're doing right now. It's inexorable. You can't stop. You'll be doing it. It's okay if you're self-conscious about it because I think it might have a little bit more valence to you if you realize what I'm talking about is something you're actually doing right now. Now, I'm going to intersperse my talk with this, which is a signal that I would like you to take a deep, one deep breath. And that one deep breath actually has a purpose. It'll, if you're getting a little bit tired, it'll alert you. It may actually improve your cognitive function. So what I've just told you might register a little bit more deeply and get you ready for the next thing I'm going to talk about. So don't be shy when you see this. Now, why do we breathe? Well, the principal reason is we need oxygen for the metabolism of cells. And when we metabolize oxygen, we produce CO2. Uh, we use about 250 milliliters a minute of oxygen. That's about a fistful size of oxygen that our bodies are using at rest. But in our body, we only have 1,000 milliliters. That is, we only have a four-minute supply. This means we have to breathe continuously. We can't stop. It's inexorable because we only have a four-minute supply in our blood. So we have to breathe continuously. Now, The byproduct of this oxidative metabolism is carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is very critical in determining the acid-base balance of the uh, body and cells, the pH. And we need to exquisitely regulate that because cells get very unhappy when the pH gets off. So we have to exquisitely control breathing. Now, at the center of all this is an organ in the lung, and the lung expands and contracts. But the lung itself has no muscle to do that. The lung is just like a balloon, and it has to be expanded and contracted by the muscles around it. But it's not just one big balloon. It's a balloon that has a lot of little balloons. That is, the air comes in through your trachea, this one tube, and it branches, and it branches, and it branches, and it branches. At at the end, you have 500 million terminals with these tiny little spheres. Each sphere is about one hundredth of an inch in diameter, and that's where the oxygen and CO2 gets into and out of the bloodstream. 500 million of them, but that's a lot of surface area. It's about 70 square meters. Now, what that means, that's about one-third the size of a tennis court. So every breath, you're expanding and relaxing this rubber-like membrane that's a third the size of a tennis court. In order to do that, mammals evolved a very special muscle that is able to do that. And that muscle is the diaphragm that sits under the lung, and it pulls down about three-quarters of an inch to expand the lung, and then relaxes, and the air flows out. So there's a very special muscle, the diaphragm, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. Now, breathing starts in utero. You have to be breathing 
the instant you're born, so in the third trimester, you're starting to engage in rhythmic activity and your muscles move, the lung gets stressed, and it's vital that it works when you're born. You breathe all the time, about 12 times a minute. You might take 600 million breaths in a normal lifetime. So the system has to be extremely robust and has to be reliable. And of course, if you get a rest without interruption, without intervention, excuse me, uh, death results. This can be natural causes. It could be opiate overdose. It could be injury. And unfortunately, nerve gases, the principal cause of death is that they stop breathing. Breathing uses about 7% of your body metabolism. We evolved that that's the minimal amount of energy that we can expend and still move the amount of air we need to move. So breathing is extremely efficient. Now, in addition to blood gases, we use the breathing apparatus for a lot of other things. We have reflexes to keep the airways working, coughing, sneezing, yawning, gagging. Um, We have volitional and other behaviors, my ability to speak, uh, sniffing during birth, spitting, and if you're a rodent, whisking seems to be driven by breathing movements. Uh, We have emotional movements that are driven by breathing. We laugh, we cry, we sigh, we can hyperventilate, we breath hold, we gasp, and if you're a a cat, you might purr. So these are all uh, emotional breathing movements. We also know breathing can affect emotion. Meditative breathing can affect emotional state, sense of pain, cognitive function, and I'll talk about that at the end of the talk. And the breathing rhythm, cycle by cycle, is everywhere throughout your body. It modulates your pupil diameter, oscillates with the respiratory cycle. We don't know why, but it does. Your reaction time varies with the respiratory cycle. Boxers and martial artists know this. Um, And your fear response varies with the respiratory cycle. You're more fearful of certain things during inspiration and expiration. We don't know why, but that's just the observation. Excuse me. And it's present in many areas of the brain, and it's probably involved in a lot of functions that are necessary for normal higher function of the brain. Now, Breathing is not always perfect. Illness or injury causes, can cause changes of breathing, which can cause further problems. So in the variety of neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and ALS, uh, commonly referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease, these diseases result in changes in breathing, and that in itself can cause further damage. These uh, problems with breathing are usually happening during sleep, so they're not noticed, but severe problems of breathing during sleep can affect brain function. We have what are called single-gene mutations, where a single gene gets uh, uh, mutated, and we have diseases like congenital central hyperventilation syndrome. There's about 1,000 kids worldwide uh, who have this, and they have to remember to breathe. When they fall asleep, they stop breathing. So they have to be ventilated at night, and if they're ventilated at night, they can uh, grow to healthy adulthood. Red syndrome is another disease that affects about 1 in 9,000 girls under the age of 12, and they have particularly emotional problems, when they have emotional problems related to breathing. Uh, insults or injuries, strokes, spinal cord injury will affect breathing. And there, these other things are actually very important. 
So sleep apneas affect about 18 million Americans. And looking at the demographics of this audience, I would say there's a reasonable fraction of people who have sleep apnea, and some of you may be undergoing uh, CPAP therapy for sleep apnea. Uh, Opiate overdose, I think the latest number is 70,000 in America died last year from opiate overdose. Uh, Sudden infant death um, is uh, the most prevalent cause of death in infants under one years of age, and the terminal event is they stop breathing. And we have things like panic and anxiety disorders, which are associated with severe breathlessness. Now, so we have this beautiful machine of breathing, and the question that I asked a long time ago was, where is the engine for breathing? And of course, most of us would probably look here, but in fact, it's back there. So the engine for breathing was not exactly where we thought it was. Uh, The history goes back, at least in Western culture, to Galen, who noted that gladiators and animals with high neck injuries immediately stop uh, breathing, but if they're injured way below the neck, um, they continue to breathe. So there's something happening in the area around the neck that's critical for generating breathing rhythm. There's a big gap in the science of this, and in in the early 1800s, Le Galois concluded that the noe vital, the node of life, because breathing is associated with life, so the noe vital, the vital node, is in the brainstem. And I'll talk about where that is. In 1909, (coughs) the renowned neuroanatomist Ramona Cajal proposed a circuit for brainstem control of breathing, And in 1931, Lord Adrian showed that you could take the brainstem out of a goldfish, put it in a dish, and it still generates a rhythm of breathing. So it means that the rhythm of breathing can be generated within the nervous system. You don't need all that apparatus to generate the rhythm. It's a little bit like the engine of a car. It works in the car, but you could take the engine out and put it on a table and hook it up, and the engine will still work. And that's a great advantage if you're trying to understand how the engine works. So here we have a a cumin. You see the uh, lungs, the diaphragm. But I want to focus on this part of the brain, and in particular the brain stem, which is down here. And we discovered a region which we call the prebutzinger complex that in humans has about 5,000 neurons. And this is the engine for breathing. And I want to spend a few minutes telling you how we discovered this. So we start out by taking the brainstem and spinal cord from a newborn rat. This is a generalized preparation that had been used by Japanese investigators. And we, when you put in a dish and you use a recording electrode, you can record rhythmic activity coming out of this chunk of nervous system. And that rhythm activity, if it were connected, would be driving the respiratory muscles. So we did a simple experiment. We said, okay, let's suppose we cut away parts of the brainstem. Does the rhythm go away? So we make one cut, nothing happens. We make a second cut, nothing happens. A third cut, nothing happens. But we make a fourth cut, the rhythm goes away. So it says that this region around that yellow line, there's something critical going on there. Then we can do the experiment going in the other direction, um, but we have to move the electrode up. So we move the electrode up, and we still get this rhythmic activity, but now we can cut away the spinal cord. Of course, we lose this nerve, so there's no activity there, but we still have activity coming out here. 
We make another cut, we still have activity, but we make one more cut and the activity goes away. So it says that there's something critical happening in this region. So what we did is we took a slice through this region. We just made a cut here and a cut here and put in a dish, and we asked, would, they, would we see breathing rhythm in this thin slice of brainstem? So this is what the slice looks like, and here we have these glass electrodes on the hypoglossal nerve. That's the nerve that would normally innovate the tongue, and the tongue has respiratory movements. Um, and this is a schematic of what it looks like. So here's the output coming out the 12th nerve, the hypoglossal nerve. Here's where the neurons are that come out the nerve. But what's driving this are cells in this region. And we can see that by recording. So if we record from the output, we have rhythmic output. This is in real time. And if we record from a neuron here, we can see that neuron is firing rhythmically. So this is driving that. Now, where does the name Prebutzinger come from? Butzinger is not a famous German neuroanatomist, as many people mistakenly think. The history goes back when we identified a region in the brainstem. So this is the brainstem. We identified a region indicated by these red dots. And it had no name in the, any of the atlases, the maps of the brain. And I had presented this work at a meeting in Stockholm and I had a colleague who had proposed a different region of the brain was critical for breathing. And he got up and he ripped me to shreds. It was, it was a postdoc. It was not particularly pleasant. Uh, a year later, we had another meeting in Germany. And he gets up and he not only confirms that this exists, but starts taking credit for its existence. Um, and there's a tradition in science of people naming things after themselves. I was afraid they were going to name it after him. We're at a banquet, there are about 100 of us, and uh, I got very nervous they were going to name it after him, so I stood up and I said we should, we found this great area, we should name it, and um, I had no idea what to name it. And the only thing with the name was in front of me was this uh, bottle of wine, <laughs> and I picked up the bottle of wine, and I said we should name it after the bottle of wine, which we were all drinking, we were sufficiently inebriated that uh, it stuck. Now, it turns out Butzinger, and we call it the Butzinger complex, was not the place generating the rhythm, but we found another place, in, indicated in yellow here, that we thought was generating the rhythm. And because of its proximity to the Butzinger complex, this had no name in the literature, and because we thought it was the source of the rhythm, we named it the pre-Butzinger complex. If you want to hear the full story... I had an interview with the BBC two years ago, and if you Google Feldman, BBC, size, S-I-G-H-S, you can listen to the interview and it tells the story in sort of all its gory detail. It's sort of fun to listen to. Um, so I'm going to talk about the pre-Butzinger complex, and of course we take this slice. That's the slice I told you about. And if we look in this slice, uh, we have high, very high magnification. You can see these neurons are lighting up. This is a slice from a mouse that's been engineered that whenever there's activity in the cells, the cells light up and we can see the light, them lighting up. And so you can see they light up rhythmically. And in your brain stems right now, every time you inspire, you have a few thousand cells lighting up that are ultimately going to cause your diaphragm to contract and then they stop firing and your diaphragm relaxes. 
if we silence about 10% of these neurons, and we can do that by using, doing some molecular magic, um, if we look at the normal breathing pattern in an adult rat, this awake rat, the rat's breathing, this is one minute, and now we had a drug that's going to just turn off 10% of these neurons, and only that in the whole brain. It takes a minute or two for the uh, drug to get around to where the prebutsinger complex is, and then the animal stops breathing. You get what's called apnea. It literally stops breathing. The animal's awake, it stops breathing. We have to mechanically ventilate the animal because it's not breathing, and after an hour, it starts breathing again. So I think this demonstrates that the prebutsinger complex is the engine for normal breathing. Well, that's big, big finding because now we know where to look. Right, time to take a deep breath because we're going to now move on to talk about rhythm generation. Oh, I, I, I put the next thing in for those people who are not scientists to understand a little bit about science. As I alluded to earlier about the Betzinger complex, science is not just a group of smart men and women getting together and coming to a consensus simply based on the data. It's a human endeavor. And uh, there are many different uh, descriptions like this, but this is the one by Halden, which I like, who calls it the four stages of truth. You propose a new idea. The first thing that happens is the colleagues who have a vested interest in something else say, this is worthless nonsense. That's happened with the pre complex. Uh, this is an interesting but perverse point of view. So they transform a bit. They accept that the data may be right, but it's perverse. Then this is true but quite unimportant. And then finally they said, I always said so. <laughs> and although it's nice when they get around to this point, you then they position themselves so they get in front of you and you want to get your full credit for this. So this happened with the Butzinger complex. The pre-Butzinger complex, it took about 10 years to win over people. And it was a big battle that we had with people to try and get them to see the data. Okay, so let's talk about rhythm generation. What are the usual suspects? The most obvious idea to most of us scientists is that it's the pacemaker neurons. So we know the heart is driven by cells that, if they were totally isolated, would generate a rhythm. They have special properties. They generate a rhythm. So why not breathing? Breathing has to be just as reliable as the heart. So you have these neurons which are called pacemakers. So pacemaker neurons are the kernel of breathing was the idea. It's a seductive idea that doesn't work. So this stuff was stuck in the literature, and we found pacemaker neurons in the prebutsinger complex, so that seemed to be consistent with this idea. Then we designed an experiment with Christopher Del Negro where we blocked the pacemaker activity. So we got rid of the pacemakers, and the rhythm uh, continued. So here's the rhythm under control conditions, and then we get rid of pacemakers, we still have a rhythm. The amplitude is down a little bit, but that's not the point. The point is that the rhythm persists in the absence of these pacemaker cells. So if it's not pacemakers, maybe it's inhibition. So here's another favorite idea. The idea being is that you start the activity, the activity grows and it grows and it grows, and then you reach a trigger point, and then some massive sort of inhibition sort of slams the door. And that's how you get the cycle going. And in the nervous system, that slamming the door would be done by inhibition. And we know inhibition is important, so here we can excite 
pre-Bitzinger inhibitory neurons. So we just, we engineer the mice so they have in the inhibitory neurons a special channel called channel rhodopsin. Then when you shine light, excites the cells, or in this case, excites the cells. So when we excite the inhibitory cells, the animal stops breathing. So those inhibitory cells can do something. The thing is, are they critical for the breathing rhythm? So we did another experiment. So this would be the control, and this is just a cartoon to say we have excitation inhibition. And we record, this is in a rat, and you can see the animal is breathing quite fine. This is their breathing effort. Now we block inhibition. What happens? Theory would predict you'd have no rhythm. But in fact, you do have a rhythm. It's slower. And the reason it's slower, because some of the things that inhibition does is regulate the timing, but it's not critical for generating the rhythm. So we have to throw that out. The rhythm persists, and inhibition is not necessary. So if it's not pacemakers, and if it's not inhibition, maybe it's bursting. Now, what do I mean by bursting? Well, if anyone knows the score, they could probably scream it out. But, you know, if you're sitting outside Dodger Stadium, could you figure out the rules of baseball? So you have your mobile phone in hand, and you notice every time there's a big scream from the crowd, the score goes up. And you notice this is consistently, consistently. So you form a hypothesis. The screaming of the crowd is what's causing the runs to go up. Reasonable hypothesis. You know, a lot of what we do with the brain is like that. We're standing outside the stadium trying to figure out what's going on inside. Then one day, the Dodgers have a game, but there's no, the public is not allowed in. And you're watching on your cell phone, standing outside the stadium, and you notice that the score keeps incrementing, and there's no crowd. So you say the crowd is not necessary for generating the rhythm. It doesn't tell you what it is, but it says the crowd is not. So we, when we think about breathing, what's the most noticeable thing about breathing, the most obvious thing, is these inspiratory efforts that you're making every breath. So something related to driving that inspiratory effort must be critical for generating the rhythm. So we did an experiment. And we call this the burst hypothesis. That is, if you look at the diaphragm, the diaphragm it generates these inspiratory bursts. If you look in the pre-Butzinger complex, the pre-Butzinger complex is also generating these bursts, and the causality is the burst here drive those bursts. But we also notice that there's some activity preceding the burst, which we call the pre-inspiratory activity or the burstlet, that's not present here. So we did an experiment. We recorded from the pre-Butzinger complex in the hypoglossal nerve in one of these slices, and we get these bursts of activity in the hypoglossal nerve. We get these bursts in the pre-Butzinger, and you see that it's one-to-one. Every time there's a burst in the pre-Butzinger, it drives a burst in the hypoglossal. This is consistent with a burst hypothesis for rhythmogenesis. Now, we do it under conditions of lower excitability, and we notice that every time there's a burst in the hypoglossal, there's a burst in pre-Butzinger. So that's consistent of these bursts driving these bursts. But if we look more carefully at the activity in the pre-Butzinger complex, and what I mean by activity, this is the sum of all the activity going on with all the, all the thousand neurons. You see these little things which we call burstlets. And if you look carefully, it looks like they're keeping time. 
And you can see that more clearly here. So here are two consecutive bursts, two consecutive bursts in pre-Butzinger. Now, where the bursts are a little further apart, we notice that when we would have expected a burst, there's one of these burstlets. Here, they're further and further apart, and we have two of the burstlets. And here, we have three, and they're all coming when you expect them to come. So the simplest conclusion here is that these are, this is what's really generating the rhythm. Now, you might say, gee, this is all negative stuff. Why don't you tell me something positive? But you have to understand that in doing science, you don't know the answer beforehand, and you go after the usual suspects. But sometimes we're like the drunk who is looking under the lamppost. And you say to the drunk, what are you looking for? And the drunk says, I'm looking for my keys. And you say, oh, you dropped your keys there? He says, no, I dropped them in the bushes, but the light is here. And so as scientists... We go where the light is. The light looked like it was pacemakers. It looked like it was inhibition. It looked like it was bursting. It's not. So we begin now to look in other places. We go look in the bushes. And um, when we look in the bushes, uh, if, and these burstlets are generating the rhythm, what is the mechanism underlying it? And we, our current hypothesis, it's the network. This is one of the hot topics now in neuroscience, is how neurons are interacting. So here's the experiment. We have this bursting. It's about 1,000 neurons in each burst. And we said, what happens if we can trigger just a few neurons? One, two, three, five. Would that be enough to initiate a burst? And then if we can initiate the burst, what's the delay? And with uh, colleagues in Paris, Valentina Emiliani, we were able to do this experiment. It was very, her technology was very sophisticated. And the way it worked is here's a, a blown up of the pre-Butzinger complex, and you can see the yellow cells there. And under a microscope, we identify the cells, and then using some chemical magic, uh, we laser, use a laser to stimulate the cells. So we can only stimulate one, two, three, four, five cells. And what we found was that if we stimulate only three cells at this point, at some delay, we get a burst with only three cells. If we stimulate three more cells, we get a burst, and it's a little bit sooner. If we stimulate nine cells, it's even sooner. But we only need a few cells to do that and what is particularly intriguing is how long it takes. Okay, in neural terms, this is like three-tenths of a second. That's forever. And what is happening? So what we think is happening is that the activity sort of starts with a few cells, and because of the way the network, nature, builds the network, the activity doesn't immediately explode, but it sort of percolates and it percolates and grows slowly and then all of a sudden explodes. And uh, we propose this idea, which is one of those ideas which many of our colleagues think are totally crazy. And uh, uh, Sufi Ashad in the lab now has experimental data that's entirely consistent with this idea, and we're very excited about this possibility as being critical for generating breathing rhythm. So it's the network. Now, we thought we had this done. We found the engine. But then we had some anomalous experiments. And 
the, the, our mindset was sort of followed by this article in the New York Times. And it's, it was a romance going sour. And since the way she breathes, exhalation following inhalation has already gotten on your nerves after 24 hours. We think of breathing as like inspiration, expiration. One has to follow the other. One has to follow the other. It's like day and night. They have to follow each other. Turns out that's not the case. So here I'm going to show you some real data. So here's a rat breathing in. Down is expiration. Up is inspiration. So it's expiration, inspiration. And this is expiratory muscle activity. So it sees the expiratory muscle activity is very rhythmic. And the inspiration is very rhythmic. This is normal breathing, quite, maybe you might say, uninteresting. But if we give this animal fentanyl, which is an opiate agonist, watch what happens. Expiration, inspiration. Expiration, no inspiration. Expiration, inspiration. Now watch this. Expiration, no inspiration. Expiration, no inspiration. Expiration, inspiration. And you notice the expiration is constant. So what's going on? Well, several years of experiments, and we came to the conclusion that there were two oscillators. So we have the pre-Butzinger complex, and we discovered that this other oscillator is sitting nearby in a region called the parafacial nucleus. It's not exactly the same place, but it's nearby. And we did the following experiment. We recorded under conditions where you have inspiratory activity and no expiratory activity. Now, I should say, at rest here, it's just inspiratory activity for you. There's no expiratory activity. You're totally passive with expiration. It's only when you need to drive lots of air, like when you exercise, that you actively expire. So it turns out that if we excite these neurons in the parafacial region, and we do this by using this genetic tool of chanerodopsin, we shine a laser light, and what happens is we turn on expiratory activity. We have inspiration, expiration, inspiration, expiration, and then when we turn the light off, it stops. So we have lots of data now that we have these two oscillators, and they normally talk to each other. They're very tightly coordinated. The The expiratory one is normally turned off, but we turn it on when we need to turn it on. Now, why have separate oscillators? Well, if you're a non-mammalian vertebrate, they don't have diaphragms. They have simple lungs. In other words, they don't have 70 square meters of lung space. It's very, very limited. So they can only pass a limited amount of oxygen. They can only support being cold-blooded. And their brains are a lot smaller. Our brains are extremely demanding of oxygen continuously. So they can make inspiratory efforts because they don't have a diaphragm. And... uh, they have an oscillator that tries to expiratory dominated movements. Now, we evolve into mammals. Mammals are the only class of vertebrates that have a diaphragm. So we now develop these lungs that can produce a lot of oxygen, move a lot of oxygen, and we have a diaphragm, we have complex lungs, we can be warm-blooded, and we have big brains that are demanding of oxygen all the time. So powerful inspiratory efforts are needed and possible, and our hypothesis is that a new oscillator, the pre-Botzinger complex, to drive the diaphragm that couples to the old expiratory oscillator, that's one in the parafacial. So we have this core system of the pre-Botzinger complex and the parafacial. They talk to each other, and then each one drives either inspiratory muscles or 
expiratory muscles. And so this is the core for generating breathing movements. Now, one of the interesting uh, aspects of this is that whereas we think brain function in mammals of all different sizes sort of acts on the same time scale, that learning and memory and perception is the same time scale. When we look at breathing, a mouse will breathe up to 300 times a minute. A whale that's not diving will breathe once a minute. So what is it about the nervous system that's changed that you go over a factor of 300 in how the rhythm is generated? It's not simply the animals are bigger. There's something going on, and at some point we hope to discover what that is. But I'm going to leave this as an unsolved problem. So summary here is we're inspiratory breathers. Expiration is passive at rest, and we have two oscillators, one for inspiration, one for expiration. I'm going to talk to you about sighing. You all know what sighing is. There are these deep breaths that you take. Um, the story basically starts with the uh, widespread use of iron lungs. When they were first used, individuals were ventilated at normal lung volumes, and there was high mortality rates. Then they decided to, they decided to ventilate at slightly higher volumes, and there's lower mortality. Then, in the 50s, they discovered what really was necessary was just to have an occasional large breath. Now, why is that? Well, remember I said there were 500 million alveoli, each less than a hundredth of an inch in diameter? They're like balloons that are fluid-lined. They have a probability of collapsing. And if you ever try to inflate a a, a wet balloon, it's very hard. You've got to pop it open. So a normal breath doesn't pop it open. A sigh does. So if you sigh every five minutes, and all of you are sighing every couple of minutes, it pops open the alveoli that have collapsed during that five minutes. But if you're prevented from sighing for an extended period of time, lots of these alveoli would collapse, and your ability to exchange oxygen would decline. And if you're stuck in an iron lung, you could uh, die. Now, a colleague of mine, was, uh, Victor Yanshevsky, was reading that when you're stressed, your sigh rate goes up. We know when we're anxious, we sigh more. But it also turns out that we release these peptides from a region called the hypothalamus, and he thought that maybe these were related. So bombasin is cheap, and I said to him, well, why don't we just buy some and see what happens? And we did, and when we injected it into the pre complex of adult rats, it increased their sigh rate from 25 per hour to 250 per hour, 10 times, without changing their regular breathing pattern. So we're on to something. Now we ask, what happens if we kill the subset of neurons in the pre complex that have these receptors? And so here's a control rat. It's sighing about 25 per minute. We now add this toxin that only kills cells that have the bombasin receptor, BBN. After three days, the sigh rate is way down. The animal's still breathing normally otherwise. After five days, the sigh rate is way, way down. And then at that point, uh, there are problems with the lungs because of all the alveolar collapse. Now, we had let this data sit in the shelf for a while. 
And uh, through interactions with Kevin Yackel, who was an undergraduate at UCLA, actually heard a lecture of mine, got interested in breathing when he went to Stanford, did some extremely interesting things about breathing, discovered that there was a tiny population of cells, which you can't see here, that have one of these bombas that express the peptide, one of the bombesin peptides. And if you look around the facial nucleus here, here's a blow-up, you see these red cells. And if you look throughout the entire brain, that's about the only place you find them. Here's a picture looking from the ventral surface. It would be like you were looking at the brain from this side, and you can see the cells in the green dots here. So they're very localized. Um, if you inject the peptides into the prebutsinger complex, it turns out the neurons that have the receptors for these peptides that listen to the peptides are in prebutsinger complex. Here's an animal sighing. These are sighs. So it's sighing about once per minute, once per two minutes. If you inject the uh, peptides, the sigh rate goes way up. This is five different rats. If you inject and you block the receptors the psi rate goes way, way down. So we've established a very simple circuit. This is rather unusual that in the brain we can establish such a simple circuit for a fundamental and critical behavior that's ongoing all the time. We have about 230 neurons here. Well, rats have 230 neurons here and about 250 neurons there, and that is driving sighing. What is the rhythmogenic mechanism for sighing? We have no idea, but... We're very interested in finding out. Now, one nice thing about this paper, when we published it, it went viral. And so we had the usual suspects write about it. The Guardian wrote something very straight up. The Washington Post wrote something very straight up. NPR got cute. Uh, and a lot of outlets got very cute about this because it's a sigh. Um, but perhaps the thing I'm most proud of is that The Onion wrote about it. It has been found that nerve cells within the brainstem regulate sighing to approximately 12 times per hour. So I really think now we've sort of sent out our message if it's in the onion. And it gave me a lot of cred with my sons. Um, so the summary for this section is we must sigh all the time due to a simple circuit involving the prebutsinger complex and the parafacial nucleus. Not supposed to laugh, you're supposed to take a deep breath. You can laugh, that's okay. Um, I, a, a brief interlude about opiates. Opiates, uh, lots of people are dying, it's a big public health problem. Uh, 70,000 last year, most deaths are due to depression or breathing. Can we make a safe formulation of a prescription opioid? And the idea is, we found, the background is, we found that opiate receptors are in prebutsinger neurons. So that makes a, a, a logical place that when someone takes an opioid, it's not only going to go to places that are involved in pain, but also affect breathing by depressing breathing. So we can imagine a region that's important in pain, uh, like the periaqueductal gray. The opioid receptors go there and block pain. They also go to the prebutsinger complex and block uh, depressed breathing to the point that someone can asphyxiate. So is there some way we can block it? So we have, a, we just submitted a grant because we have an idea that was originally uh, demonstrated proof of principle in 2003 of a colleague who showed they can block the actions here but not there. Unfortunately, in the human trial, the 
idea did not, the drug did not work. And we think we understand why, and we're, we're hoping to get money from the NIH to look at this. So by, count, by, by counteracting opiate actions in the prebutsinger complex, it's possible for safer drugs, for, uh, safer for pain management. Breathing and emotion. We had a, a review recently, and this is the cover that they put on it of a meditating mouse. And in fact, our interests are such that we have a grant to teach mice and rats to breathe slowly on command to try and understand how this is inducing the effects we know that breathing can induce on emotion and pain. So they call the breathe in, breathe out, the neural control of respiration. Uh, and how can breathing affect emotional state? Well, there's a variety of ways, but I'm just going to mention two. One is a direct projection from prebutsinger complex affecting regions involved in emotion. But what I'm going to talk to you now is about a projection, once again, by Kevin Yakko, Mark Krasnow, and our colleagues up at Stanford that identified to go from the prebutsinger complex to a region called locus cerealis. Locus cerealis is a very special region because from the locus cerealis, you have projections going throughout the entire brain. And we found neurons in the prebutsinger complex that project here, and through some molecular magic, Kevin was able to kill the small population of prebutsinger neurons that projected there, but left the rest of the prebutsinger intact. And what happened is that the animals seemed to be perfectly normal. When he looked at them more carefully, he ablating the prebutsinger uh, CDH neurons projecting locus cereus, it slows breathing. So if you look at uh, the distribution of breathing frequencies in a, a mouse as it grooms, as it, uh, this during wakefulness, as it stays still, as it roams around the cage, this is the distribution. After we kill the CDH9 cells, you could see that the animal is breathing slower. Now, associated with the slower breathing, if you look at the behavior and you measure electrical activity in the brain, the mice appear calmer. So we put together this story that this may be a way that breathing is influencing emotional state, and in this case, the animals are calmer. Now, this, the, you can see how the profound effects from prebutsing are complex. So here's a side view of the brain of a rat. The head is here. The tail is there. Here's the prebutsinger complex. The green is the projections from the prebutsinger complex, which goes to a lot of places. But what I want you to look at is this orange, which is going to locus cereus, and from locus cereus it goes to the whole brain. So that's a potential entryway for breathing to affect the whole brain. And we're busy investigating this now. Now, this paper also went viral, and um, it had one extremely positive effect uh, shortly after this appeared, I got a phone call from a colleague in the Department of Psychiatry, Helen Lavretsky, and Helen uses breathing uh, exercises for helping people who are at risk for dementia and caretakers for people with dementia who are under a lot of stress. 
and she was looking to, to put together an overall research program and asked us if we'd be interested. And of course we were. And together with Helen, we're trying to put together a center to study the relationship between breathing and emotion where, where we can get to the very basic mechanisms and she can look at, uh, she and her colleagues can look at mechanisms involved in uh, the brain at large in humans. So we have this core circuit for breathing. Uh, this core circuit for breathing um, is interacting with other movements. So we have to coordinate breathing with speech. In order for me to speak to you, I have to coordinate the expiratory airflow with the fact I need to take air in on a regular basis so I don't pass out. Uh, we need to stop breathing when we swallow, chewing. So there's coordination here. Um, we also have these, what we call the ascending inputs, the places through like locus aurelius that are co going to coordinate with and affect emotion, cognitive function, and sensory function. And then we have these descending inputs, which are related to the emotional expression of laughing, crying, and so on. Now I'm going to end with another popular quote. Um, I presume most of you are familiar with, with this. Uh, it was written by a, a, a Swedish author who was educated by my neuroscientist colleagues in Stockholm. And I congratulated them because in, in this book, he talks about the brain. And he says, she had a talent for irritating the other employees. She became known as the girl with two brain cells, one for breathing and one for standing up. So just like the European uh, uh, Brain Council, which mentioned breathing as one of the most critical things the brain does, here Elizabeth Sander has two brain cells and one for breathing. But now you know that this is not correct. She has two for breathing, one for inspiration, one for action, so she has at least three brain cells. So in summary, the, uh, this, is what, this is going to be on the exam. Okay, so the prebutzinger complex, that's the engine for inspiratory breathing. It's active before birth because it has to be working when you're born. The mechanisms for rhythm generation are unknown, but we think the network is very critical. The parafacial nucleus, it's the engine for active expiratory breathing, and I say active because normally it's quiescent. It's silent at rest. It becomes activated at exercise and when you make volitional efforts where you need your expiratory movements. I talked about size, the vital for life, and it seems to be a relatively straightforward circuit that's responsible for doing it. We don't understand how it's regulated on a breath-by-breath -breath or side-by-side -side basis, but it's a, we're actively looking at that. And then breathing affects emotion. I will stipulate yes, and the mechanisms are currently being explored. Now, this work was done in my lab, but it was done by a large cohort of extremely talented and wonderful people. And I can't thank them individually, but you'll get to see pictures of, of all of the people I work with who stand behind this work. And for them, I'm uh, eternally grateful for their efforts to advance the topic as much as we did. With that said, thank you very much for your attention. I'll be happy to take some questions.
Dr. Feldman, thank you for such a marvelous talk. Um, we do have time for questions, and it's uh, going to be useful with, if you raise your hand, a person with a microphone, a roving microphone, will run towards you. Is yawning a sign, a type of sighing, and what causes that, and is it indeed contagious? <laughs> um, th this is usually something I reserve for discussions in barrooms late at night. Um, yawning is an, an, another reflex. We are not entirely sure what the uh, full benefit is of yawning. Certainly, we can use that if our eustachian tubes get closed up. We can use it to open up the airways. As far as contagion goes, there may be a social aspect to yawning. I'm bored, I want to get out of here, and I want to communicate that to other people. Why other people then imitate it, I can't spec. I, I really don't know. If I had a couple of beers, I might speculate, but not at this point. I have a question over here. Jack, Jim Weiss. A beautiful talk. Thank you, Jim. Uh, terrestrial mammals, uh, obviously mostly breathing is involuntary, but aquatic mammals seems uh, need much more of a voluntary mechanism to control breathing so they don't drown when they're submerging. Are there any differences in the circuits that uh, regulate breathing in, in them? Well, uh, that's, it's a, that's a very interesting question, Jim. Thank you. Uh, diving mammals have a lot of specializations, and we actually still have some of them. It's called the diving reflex. So if you splash cold water on yourself, you may initiate the diving reflex. And what the diving reflex does is you stop breathing, you stop your circulation from going anywhere except the two most critical organs, your heart and your brain. And if you're a diving whale, it'll go to your extremely efficient tail muscle. And the rate of oxygen consumption then gets reduced tremendously. Every year we have young children fall through the ice and they could be submerged for half an hour or more and they can survive. And the reason they survive is one, diving reflex, and two, because they're small, their surface area to the body volume is so small, they cool down quickly enough so that four-minute oxygen that we have can now last them 30 or 40 minutes. Whereas you and I, if we went below the water, we wouldn't call off, cool off fast enough. So I don't know if that really answered your question, but that's as close as I can get. Uh, thank you. Um, here, I'll stand up. I, I don't quite know what my question is, but it's about apnea, sleep apnea. Um, it seems to be being diagnosed much, much more frequently these days, uh, and not just in people with CPACs, but people who, I don't know, snore a little. Um, and I guess I, I'm in the second category. And I just wonder if you, and, and we're always told that there are really dire consequences of apnea. Oh, okay, so that's the answer. Uh, well, I, I, could, I could explain a little bit. So you stop breathing. You're still using oxygen, so your oxygen levels drop. Depending how long you're not breathing, the oxygen levels can drop to the point where they can begin to do damage. Now, remember, you're not just stopping breathing. People would sleep apnea once per night. It can be as many as 400 times a night. People stop breathing, and the only way they start again is to wake up. 
So that is the consequences of disrupting sleep, exposing their, their, all their cells, but particularly their brain, to extended periods of low oxygen. And their blood pressure can often shoot up to well over 200 systolic. So you imagine happening this hundreds of times a night, and the cumulative effect over time is just devastating. Now, the therapy that works is, are these positive pressure ventilators. The problem is most people hate them, and there's a lot of effort to try and fi find alternative mechanisms that can keep people ventilating all night. Did, did that answer your question? Like snoring. Uh, NIH says that people who snore have three to five times the rate of incidence of strokes and heart attacks. Snorers, not people with, with frank sleep apnea. So snoring in and of itself is something that uh, is a matter of concern. I don't mean to alarm you, but... Hi. Uh, since we sometimes historically have thought of basic mechanisms in terms of the male model of human, I just wonder... Uh, excuse me, the... the you, sometimes we think of basic mechanisms in terms of a male model of human being as opposed okay. to both genders, and I'm just wondering if your research includes any potential differences in females, because if you're linking the entry points and neural networks, you know, I just wonder if you've seen any differences between male and female We, we haven't. At, at the level we've been looking at, we have not seen any differences. However, demographically, for sleep apnea, women seem to be protected until menopause. And then in menopause, their rate of sleep apnea rises. So it's something about the protective effects probably of uh, hormones that are reducing the likelihood that women becomes, uh, have obstructive sleep apnea. But as soon as they pass menopause, their rate of sleep apnea goes up. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.